Hello, I'm Stephanie Lewell. Welcome to my podcast, Surface Time Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I chinwag with people who are like me, scuba diver and chronic addicts to being underwater. During the service time today, I had the joy of catching up with a dear friend, Emma Dabadi, who has been living in Cape Town, South Africa for some time in pursuit of her marine research and discoveries. When we spoke, she was fresh off the scientific shinder called Tara from an expedition along the West Africa coast as part of the mission Michael Boyle where they are uncovering the benefits of the ocean microbiome and the interactions with the climate and pollutions. How are you? Amazing. How are you? I've played with you for almost 10 years since we've been to Hong Kong. Yeah. Oh my God. Has it been that, been that long? It looks like you're in the office. I'm in the office. Yes. Yeah. There's no one here at the moment. I'm busy catching up on my 800 emails that I missed out on the last five weeks. Child free environment. So I escaped in the office. <laughs> You look well with somebody who's been on the boat for a month. Thank you. No, I've been slept for the last week. So I'm looking better than I was looking a bit run down a week ago. Not going to lie. Yeah, it was a really cool experience. So, where are you now? So I'm in Cape Town, the University of Cape Town, where I've been working for the past, since we moved here seven years ago. So I managed to get a postdoc. Someone was brave enough to take me on. And it turned into a research fellowship. I'm soft money funded, but it snowballed. And the microbes in the Southern Ocean and the Indian Ocean and the Benguela current, all of which border South Africa, have not been studied before. So it was a perfect niche for me to hop in and do some cool work with people. So we've got a little group of people now. It's a huge coverage area for you to play around. It's huge. It's amazing. I'm going to touch the Southern Ocean starting from this month. So that's new for me. But the other two oceans I've got... A foot in both of them at the moment, which is amazing. Okay. It's a lot of work. Does that mean that you speak on the field more or in the lab or better or? So to start with, there was a lot of field work because virtually nothing had been done. Nobody knows what the microbes are doing. A little guy made any of these in this part of the world. So it was a lot of hopping on monitoring cruises because it was the only type of ship that was going out and putting protocols on board and students on board and taking samples as much as possible. Now I've got a student base, so they go out. So Tara was my first field trip in about five years. I stayed home and had two kids and wasn't really able to get out. So that was really exciting to be able to get back into the field, which is really exciting. Oh, wow. Okay, we can talk about Tara in a bit, but I want to ask you, where was your last memorable dive? Oh, Bali. Without a doubt. And that was with Ali. Yeah. With Sonia and Joyce was there for sure. It was just amazing. Full of sharks and corals and fish. That was ages ago. I've been diving here, which is also memorable in a different way. Very cold. I'm not a cold water person. <laughs> it's beautiful, but it's seven degrees. It's full of kelp and octopus and sharks as well. So probably memorable in a different way, but the cold is, yeah, I don't get out as often as I probably should because of that. But Bali for me, the warm waters and the biodiversity was just something I'll never forget. Oh, wow. So in the cold water, did you actually go down in dry suits or still just wet suits? You just bundle up in wetsuits. But if you want to go down for any kind of longer than 20 minutes, you must dry suit up because otherwise it's four or five degrees. And you know, oh my God, you'll be frozen. Exactly. <laughs> what can you be going up with a block of ice? <laughs> well, people go with no wetsuits at all. 
it's this new thing where they go down and it's supposed to be healthy to go into the cold water and just breathe it and they acclimate to it. It's actually quite interesting, but that's not something I will ever do. I admire them for that. The rest of us kind of thinking, she's living down in Cape Town and she's close to starting run and big adventurous stuff that we sing on Discovery channels. And there's you sitting here just telling me, too cold, I don't like to go down. No, so the sardine run is on my bucket list. And it's not cold, it's actually warm water that side. Okay. Uh, and it's on my bucket list, for sure. I went free diving there before the kids. We went with um, whale sharks, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. Hey, so when you take the camera down with you, what's it like for you when you go down diving, actually? I wanted to ask you that. You being a marine biologist, you obviously see the underwater world very differently. Yeah, I do. I see things differently. Certainly, I I see the small things, I think, because that's what I'm studying right now. But I'm often putting the different puzzle pieces together, if that makes sense. So yes, I look at the bacteria and the little guys, but they're all affected by the big guys. I'm looking at the kelp, I'm thinking of the current. What's what's that? Why is the water visibility low? What's going on? And I think it's all those different things going on in my head as and lights and why is the light funny today and the light here is beautiful because it's almost green because of all the productivity in the water it's very almost spooky but in a kind of positive way that always it sets my brain into about a million different directions about what is causing it so when you get diving yeah you current do you think of current differently because for most of us it's like ah current where's my exit how do i get out of here (laughs) for you you say why is it coming this way and all this happening? Exactly, exactly, yeah. So if you do get caught in the current and then being a marine biologist in the water where you do the research, what would go through your mind? I'm really curious because you clearly have a different response. <laughs> well, obviously, step one, if it really is strong, then, you know, safety first, obviously. But I think because that's what I'm studying. So where is it coming from? What does that mean? What's the water temperature like? What's in the water? What isn't in the water? What is the light like? And these are all being affected by the current. And so that's, yeah, I think once it isn't too strong and I'm able to hang out for a bit, just observing and then observing what's around me and it's all being affected. Yeah, it's all connected. Like I said, it's all different puzzle pieces. I'm trying to put them all together. From what I understood, I don't know about South Africa, but I know that in places like Taiwan, Hong Kong, the movement of currents is actually seasonal. So that different parts of the year and then the current will move in a particular direction. And certain times of the year, like in northeast parts of Taiwan, you will not dive outside summer because the current will be crazy and in this wrong direction. Do you, do you have that in South Africa as well? They're not so strong where we are. They are seasonal in the south, so we have more Antarctic waters in the summer, which makes it very cold, and it's less strong in the winter. So there's a temperature difference, but as far as strong currents, such as I remember in the Philippines, experiencing just hectic, hectic currents, I've never experienced anything like bloody hands. <laughs> never had that experience in South Africa. So it's just a temperature, not really <laughs> current, so to speak. So you have a different current and different temperature at different times. So that means your research of the microbiome is literally seasonal as well. Yeah, 100%. Completely different. It's day by day, it's different. As bacteria grow by the hour. So you're seeing an hourly difference, but seasonal, it's night and day. It's fascinating. I've never thought about it that way, but I'm so glad I'm talking to you as a marine biologist who just knows a lot better. I'm really keen to know more about Tara. She's been built for a long time. 
And she's not super big. She's a schooner. Exactly. She's not just a boat or yacht. And so what was it like to be on it? And obviously you got to tell us if you can, what were you doing? <laughs> Mom could tell you both of those things. Okay. So being, <laughs> being on it was a, honestly a dream come true for me. As you said, it's been around for a while. It was previously owned by Sir Peter Blake, who was tragically killed on the Amazon River, and then bought by Agnes B. and Etienne Bourgeois as a private foundation. They created this foundation to not just do science, but do education as well. So it's quite unique. I've been a huge fan of that because I think science is great. But if we can't communicate that in a way that everyone understands what we're doing, what it means, there's really no point in doing it. And Tara just does such an incredible job. So like I said, I've been a groupie of Tara since I can't remember when. And then this opportunity pot cropped up where I literally needed money to keep doing what I'm doing here in South Africa. And I literally just sent them a cold email and was like, I'm a huge fan. This is what I'm doing. This is where I am. What can I do? And they, they replied. And we're like, look, we're putting this grant proposal together. We desperately need someone from South Africa who works on microbiomes. Tara is going to go out with this two-year mission. Are you interested in being involved? Of course. The answer was, of course, yes. That was about five years ago. It was a long process. But the grant got accepted eventually. And that led to Tara leaving France over 18 months ago, circling South America, dipping down into Antarctica, and then finally arriving Cape Town over just over a month ago, where I got to be chief scientist on this boat. So it really was an absolute dream come true to be it, not only on Tara, but to be able to be in charge of my own project and then my own team and be able to just say, this is where we're going to go. Oh, wow. uh, and then, so what are we studying? So on the west coast of Africa, something called the Benguela upwelling. So upwelling, as you probably know, are very productive areas because all of these nutrient-rich waters because of these prevailing winds in South Africa, which are very strong and give us all sorts of grief on land that create all sorts of productivity. These nutrient-rich waters come to the surface and create massive algae blooms. And economically, as well as biodiversity-wise, it's super important for the region. But nobody knows what's happening on the microbiome side, so the microbes. And then it goes all the way up into Namibia, and of course it's a different country, so that creates problems on the South African side. You need permits, you want to collaborate with local Namibians. This is something we didn't have time to do and that Tara helped us do. So we put together a permit so that we could sample up the coast and for the first time get a holistic view of the whole ecosystem. So we spent a month literally zigzagging up the coast, taking samples all the way from viruses for up to jellyfish. We sampled everything. So we have a like big picture of what's happening. Well, in case uh, the listener needs to go and then try to figure out what the micro is on Google. <laughs> Google so convenient nowadays, right? Say I'm a five-year-old kid. How do you explain to me what that is? Microbiome. It's a new sort of buzzword. And basically it means anything that's really tiny. Anything you need to look under a microscope to see what it is, that would be considered a microbe. And that's a general definition. So if you scoop some water and you look at it, it looks clear normally. Unless it's something horrible going on. But if you look under the microscope, you're going to see all sorts of bits and pieces, everything from viruses all the way up to bacteria, there are fungus as well, and little tiny algae as well. The teeny weenies, so you can't see them with the naked eye. They constitute 95% of all carbon biomass in the ocean. So even though they're invisible, without them, life doesn't exist. And climate models incorporate it in such a way that they know they recycle stuff, but that's it. 
And with DNA, we're able to dive much deeper than that. We're able to understand exactly what they're doing function-wise. So that was a big part of this mission as well, is to look at all these different bits and pieces and these little bugs and figure out exactly what they're doing. So they're also very crucial to the amount of oxygen that being emitted out of the ocean. How's that linked to climate change or the climate? Climate crisis. Exactly. Yeah. As we know, the oceans are the lungs of the ocean and these microalgae are a huge part of that. So if climate change is to disturb that in any way, we need to know about it and we need to know exactly what's going to happen. Not only that, but when they die, so they, you create all these big algae blooms or red tides or whatever, when they die, these microbes will respire, they'll recycle them, but they also are sucking all the oxygen out of the water when they do that. So we've got too many nutrients or climate change or agriculture disturbing that, then those oxygen minimum zones, as we call them, will expand. And you imagine fish and such don't like that too much, and it's going to have a negative effect on them. And it already is. So that's really crucial. And it's all due to microbes that these phenomena are happening. So understanding exactly what they're doing and why is really important. So when it sucking out a lot of oxygen. Are there any solutions or are you still in the process of finding <laughs> the solutions to where do you stand? <laughs> I was thinking about another question. I wish I had the solution to that. Uh, the solution is you must pot, stop pumping fossil fuels and you're right. Warmer waters hold less oxygen. So the warmer the climate gets, the bigger these oxygen minimums are going to get. Short answer to that question, we need to cut back on the greenhouse emissions. Like more than that, and these samples are still sitting on a boat. So we're going to spend the next couple of years properly analyzing them and hopefully coming up with a more specific answer to that question. Is that part of the goal that ultimately, once you've done all the analysis, the research, obviously it's not just the sample that will keep you occupied for the next two years. There'll be other things that an extension from when you need to go out to the field to do that. So what else have you got in the pipelines for you oh, to continue look, we... with all that research? Exactly. And you're right. So we webbed on Tyre and we took one sample at each station and that's a snapshot, right? So if you want to help inform models, you need more than just a snapshot. You need to keep going out there and keep taking samples in different conditions to see what's going on. So a big part of it as well was capacity building and collaboration with Namibia and with the Namibian government, which we did do, and training them to take samples like we did. So they're taking nation mm -hmm. state, which we did. And so for the next two, three years, they'll be taking samples like we did over and over again, so that we can get a proper idea of what's going on. So it's building into a monitoring initiative as well as just an expedition to scope the waters and see what's going on, which is really important. Aside the research you were doing on Tara, I'm really curious about the internal setup because it's not exactly a livable scenario where you can go on the boat and you could dive in, have the crew to look after you. It's not a big vessel that can take on a lot of people. No. What no, was their maximum capacity and how many of you were there all together? And a month, you really have to love each other. I'm really glad you asked that question because it's so true. And it was something that I think was at the back of all of our minds before we even got onto the boat. And it's exciting. 14 people, you can have capacity on that boat. And we were 14 people on that boat. So we were six crew, six scientists. We had an artist and a journalist. So we buddied up. We were two per cabin with bunk beds. And look, they did such an amazing job. You're right. You're coming on board and the crew all know each other quite well. They're Terra Foundation crew members, so they're all put together and work very well together. 
as scientists, we were brand new on the boat, all of us, except for one. I think that we had the biological engineer and the oceanographic engineer who knew the crew, but the rest of us were brand new. And they do such an amazing job. As you said, it's a 36 meter boat. You can very easily get on top of one another. And at a month, if you're a month at sea, doing important work is important. That doesn't happen. Basically, it involves you in every single aspect of running the boat. So you're not only doing science, you're helping with the cleaning, you're helping with the cooking, you're helping with watches, and there's a rotation. So for example, at dinner, we have a rotation. Your group number two on Monday does lunch surface. So when lunch, you ring the bell, everyone sits down, they stay sitting down. Only the lunch surface people will serve you. And that goes everything to serving you water, collecting your dishes. No one else gets up. And it sounds trivial, but it, it's stuff like that that stopped us from... Can you imagine if everyone got up? It's this cramped area to help themselves to pasta or whatever very quickly it becomes a mess. There was a group, so there's lunch service, same thing with dishes. There was the same group of people and we rotated that did all of the dishes. So lunch dishes, dinner dishes, same thing with the cleaning. We were cleaning the toilets, we were vacuuming, same thing. It was one group of people. So there was a rotation. Watch as well. The science finishes and the boat continues to move and someone needs to be in the wheelhouse to make sure if the radio goes off, if something pops up on the radar, funny noise. So you always accompany a crew member at night for two hours. And again, there was a rotation there as well where you would. And I actually found that really interesting because you're not only learning about the science on board, but you're learning how a boat like that runs. Yeah. And it went really well. Now, obviously, the crews, they know the boat very well and then they've been with it for probably the longest time. And but when you're cruising along the West Africa coast, are the weather all fair or you've got your up and down? I'm sure that you must have that some moment. Oh, for sure. And again, it's a small boat. It's a tippy boat. It's the smallest research vessel I've been on. And we all got seasick. All of us scientists, the, the season's crew members were fine. And we still had to work. So that was a struggle. I still remember Matilde, she's such a sweet girl sitting here looking at me, looking green. She said, we have to label our bottles for tomorrow. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> we all just wanted to die, but the crew looked after you. They were so sweet. They made sure that we needed medication and we were well hydrated. They knew how to deal with it. And we all got over it within a couple of days. Uh, the weather for the most part was really lovely. We were really lucky. And the really cool thing is it's a schooner, right? It's not a great big powerboat. So we actually drifted up the Benguela current to sample the Benguela current. I don't know how much fuel we saved, but a fraction of the fuel that was budgeted for the cruise because we sailed when we could and we drifted when we could, which is so cool. I feel sometimes you go out on these great big ships and you're consuming millions of dollars of petrol a day to study the ocean and save the ocean. You think, oh, it's a bit of a boxy moron. But this Tara definitely put the <laughs> words, they, what's the word? <laughs> practice what they preach. It is right because it's got two masts and a proper sailing boat. Do you get involved in the sailing part as well as a part of your rotation as well? So not just a on the deck watching. You're helping hoist the sails, the classic rider. Oh, wow. So you really are looking for the wind, that you want the wind to come so you can sail. Too much wind and you can't sample, so it's a happy middle ground. And there were a few times when the swell was too big and we couldn't sample, so we just had to move things around a little bit. But for the most part, we were really lucky. Really lovely weather. It's right before the winter storm. So I think we uh, did you take lots of photos of Tara and the staff? Oh, we had a journalist on board. I have a ton of photos. There's a documentary coming up as well, whether I like it or not. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Like a Discovery Channel kind of documentary? 
It is. I don't know what sort of format the final cut got sent to the foundation about a week ago. So we'll see what sort of format comes out on. But yep, that was part of the agreement. You must agree to be on film. And as I said, they do a very good job of communicating what they do to the general public. And that's hopefully what it will do. Any idea where they're going to be shown? Like Net Geo? I don't know. Possibly French television. Um, okay. How's the end, by the way? Obviously, we're talking about both. And then there's a connection to him. So how's he doing? He's doing very well. He was very supportive. He was a single parent for five weeks. I'm so supportive. It was a big decision to say yes to that with two small children. He's doing very well. He's still making boats. There's still clients despite COVID, despite the economy. And so we're very lucky. I see the pair of us are still, but he's doing very well. What does he think of Tara? Because it's different kind of boats from the one that he makes. <laughs> yeah. Design. I think he admires it like I do and what it does. It's obviously much heavier and much older than the boats that he makes, but its purpose is very different. And what it does, I think, inspires Jan. I think sometimes he feels guilty that as he puts it, he's making plastic boats every day. How is that <laughs> the climate? And they just, if you can go out and do your thing, at least I feel like I'm contributing to the greater good. So <laughs> we put it there. So redemption. There you go. <laughs> Oh, wow. You've been down in uh, South Africa for seven years now? Yeah, since 2013. Okay, that's... It's almost nine years. Oh, eight, gosh. Eight, yeah. Eight, nine years. Sorry, I couldn't get my math right. <laughs> oh, no, I had to think about that as well. The poor brain. <laughs> so what has it been like? Because you... Originally from Canada, then you went to Hong Kong, you did your, your research there at Hong Kong U, and then, then you moved all the way to Africa. Yeah. It's amazing. It's really the quality of life here is amazing. It's got its moments. As we say with Yan, every country has its moments, I think, especially nowadays. And the people are just so happy and despite the conditions, which often are dire and for people, you know, who aren't doing well, but always a smile on their face. Beautiful weather. I'm Canadian. I'm used to minus 20 winters. Everyone complains about the winters here and they're beautiful. Like 20 degrees, it rains every now and then. We've got mountains, we've got ocean. We surf, we dive, we hike every weekend and like I said before we're both so lucky to have jobs that are they're still there especially after everything's gone through in the last few years have you pre-covid have you managed to travel around like some different parts of Africa since you're on that continent oh yes we did so our honeymoon we went up to Namibia and we did a tour of the Namibia and the Kalahari desert just absolutely stunning country nobody there driving for hours and hours you don't see anything but just animals beautiful otherwise we've explored a lot of south africa which i think was a lifetime worth of explorations there alone and yeah we're looking forward to doing more explorations in the future what's the most memorable one for you so far oh namibia by far it's got a very interesting landscape yes it's got lots of sand and you would think we were worried driving and we obviously drove everywhere that it would be boring because it's just it was never boring it always changes you've either got mountains cropping out of nowhere or you've got bright red sand I mean, literally bright red and the wildlife everywhere and we saw everything from wild foxes to oranks to lions yeah it was never boring it's a really beautiful 
varied landscape, despite what we thought before we left. It must make you really appreciate life a lot more, being surrounded by all those uh, aesthetic, beautiful nature. Definitely, yeah. And wow. That's very cool. But yeah, we're very lucky. You must come. When the border is a lot more open. (laughs) Singapore's relatively open. And I still need to do a few other visits. Probably you ever do. Making up for the lost time. <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask you some questions. So when we go diving, we the diving stuff in one bag and you have the dry stuff. So in a dry bag, your non-diving yep. stuff, what are the top three items that you will always pack for the trip? <clears throat> Good question. Yeah, such a long time ago. A towel, sunscreen, and probably a hat. <laughs> Here in South Africa, you take that with you everywhere. Otherwise, you end up like a lobster. Like a lobster. I have an underwater hey. camera, so that doesn't count. The camera always goes down with me. So <laughs> the three top tips that you would give on safe diving practice. And I think it would be good that if you share that from your experience as a marine biologist because you would die for specific purpose be top tip i think prepare really do your research before you dive that's tip number one so you're not caught out tip number two even if you are prepared the unexpected happens i think keep your wits around always be aware of what of your surroundings i think mm-hmm. it was always, always going through my head especially when it's currents and stuff and three i'm thinking back at my safety course I always go with someone. You know, where's your buddy? How's your buddy doing? And keeping in contact with them. Definitely, yeah. I think that would be the top three. Yeah, I, I don't understand why people would do solo diving. No, people do. I don't understand why. <laughs> it just freaks me out. <laughs> <laughs> that. Don't. Just don't. <laughs> okay, the next one. What is your greatest fear? Oh. I think... My greatest fear now, certainly having just done this trip and read about it and then having children, the future of the ocean is my greatest fear at the moment. Roads that we're hurtling down, it scares me. And if there isn't a big movement and change worldwide, our oceans are not going to look anything like they do today. And that scares me because it's the life, it's world life. It's not just in the ocean, it creates life on earth as well. And anyway, I think there's going to be a tricky future for the next generation. And that's constantly on my mind, certainly when I'm doing my research. What is it going to look like in 10 years time, 20 years time? We had a postdoc who just went to Australia and over the Great Barrier Reef, super excited. And she said it was depressing to see how much dead coral there was out there. So one hopes Nature will find a way, but we hope it's a way that will continue to create life in the ocean and not go in the wrong direction. So that's my greatest fear. I think it's a fair statement for you to make it because you being a mother, you have kids and then you start to think about the future and you're seeing based on what you have studied, what you have read, what you have, and you're actually at the forefront of collecting all those data and analyzing them. And then lots of time whatever analysis that been come out and the interpretation has been put in, they tend to stay in the academic environment rather than the general commercial mass general population. 
that you see younger generations taking on a more radical approach and go on the street and protesting. And then, and then finally, we're beginning to see that the government and the large corporates start to really taking the responsibility and then focusing on that working towards net zero 2050, which is not long. Yeah, not long to go, actually. And considering that the amount of damages that have been accumulated in the last 50, 70 years. <laughs> How do you turn that around? And, <laughs> and I can see why. That's your fear. Totally. I don't know. It's just the damage we see. It's the damage we don't see as well. And that's what I'm afraid to find in these results. There's greenhouse gases being generated by these low oxygen zones that are 300 times more concentrated than CO2. And where is it going? We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah. I really hope that I find nothing. I feel that it's staying down in the ocean and not being seeped up into the atmosphere. But it's stuff like that as well. Yeah, it is. Hopefully there'll be some of the just like eating carbon dioxide and pumping oxygen. But microbes are cool things. And there are microbes that are breaking apart these greenhouse gases. And let's hope we find lots of those in the surface waters. Yeah, and find a way to bloom them so that maybe come to one of the solutions. <laughs> to bring down the temperature, but oh my gosh, come to think of it. <laughs> okay, the next one. What's your greatest extravagance? Oh my god! Oh my goodness! That's a funny question to ask, having lived on a boat with three things in my bag. <laughs> <laughs> I would say honestly, lately. Like a bubble bath. We had a great, huge drought here like 10 years ago. We weren't allowed to have long showers, let alone a bubble bath. It's okay now. We just literally built a pool, which wasn't something that we were able to consider three years ago. And coming home, having a bubble bath after time was just amazing. And again, not something that we were allowed to do three years ago. So it's scaled down since Hong Kong, my extravagance, but I would say water and using <laughs> it in liberally, and then that's considered using it liberally. It was just like, oh. Yeah. Wow. That's another issue with Africa, the drought. Yeah. You it get is. that a lot. It is, and it's still an issue out east. And we're lucky here. We've got a lot of rains now, and the reservoirs are full, but out east, they're struggling still. And there've been horrible floods because of the downpours and the ground is so parched, it's just not absorbing any of those waters. So it's, it is a huge issue and we still must be careful, even though the reservoirs are full here, we must be aware of the fact that they're not full in the majority of the country still. So the access to water, clean water is a real issue. It's becoming an issue out east. Yeah, definitely. And so there, I think you can truck water out, but then that's obviously not ideal. A lot of people are struggling. Certainly in the middle of the country, we're very lucky on the coast at the moment. You have to keep them. So though we laugh at your extravagance, having <laughs> been bubble bath, really is an extravagance given where we are. Yeah. It yeah. really yeah. is. Yeah. And this having a bath, I don't have a bath tap in Singapore. Yeah, I know. Next question. What do you value most in your friends? Oh, this is a really good question. I think nowadays, sincerity and be just keeping in contact. We don't have a lot of support here in Africa. We both decided to come here and family is far away. So I really appreciate Project X, for example, that WhatsApp group is having that support. I know it's so stupid, but our campus half burnt down. 
last year. And the first people to be on online is like, are you okay? With you guys, which is amazing. And that support means the world to me, I think. So keeping an eye on, and yeah, we're all over the world and we've got our families or our projects. So we're living in different countries and keeping together is for me, just keeping in touch every now and then. Yeah. It's really hard. I think there's a beauty of projects too. I was chatting with Margaret the other day and it's, it, we're not in, not in each other's pocket, but when we meet, they say a lot of questions. What did you do? What have you been on? <laughs> Exactly, exactly, exactly. If you've been apart for long, it's almost you, it's like you hadn't to pick up where we left off sort of thing, which is really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. I love that. And I feel so blessed to have you guys that being part of this family. One last question. If you were the host of the podcast and so we swapped seat, yeah. and what question would you have for me to answer? Just one. Just <laughs> a million questions. <laughs> You're a scientist, so you've got the curious mind. So what does it make the number? I think I would ask the same question you asked me at the beginning, but what recently has been your most memorable dive? Okay, the most recent one, literally two weeks ago, I went back to Bali, but this time was for scuba diving trainings. Back in Hong Kong over the years, I gradually got myself to be certified as an instructor and the whole point of me doing diving I never set it out with the intention to become an instructor I just continued because you just thought okay I'm going to do the next bit to upgrade my skill set to make up my knowledge and the thing is once you become instructor people tend to have this perception of you now thinking that you know it all actually it's not <laughs> It really is not the case. And then I think the sense of responsibility is I would need to keep on my own personal development because there's always the water skill practice. And if I haven't been doing it a while and I should go and practice myself, I teach as a hobby rather than in a full-time job. So I only just teach friends and family and words of mouth and still want to make sure I teach people the right way. So I went and signed up to do this GOE, GOE fundamental course. And it was a twin tank training. I had a choice between a single and twin tank. And then I thought, why well, something twin tanks? Practicing on my buoyancy and the underwater skill. Do you remember um, ProDive in Hong Kong? The dive shop. The previous owner, Steve, he was a, a very experienced tech dive instructor, like highly respected in the industry. Now, I remember watching a video of him in the pool and he's quite teeny and he's like a ninja turtle in the water with that all set up and he was doing all sorts of drill and then he did not move up and down at all. Okay. It's like he just in yeah. suspense still, but he was doing the movement. You and I know that with diver, when we move anything, we can get over. It's that kind of aspiring for me to aspire to be like that. Then I went on and did this course, not that I mastered it. I did get better at the end of the five days course. And I got this there, 10 mark that the back of my hand is really dark. And then my arm. Oh no. <laughs> oh my God. Because the girly side of me just keeps saying, oh my God, that looks so tragic. That's not cool. If I could be Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So that was my last memorable dive and a souvenir. And now you have a souvenir to prove it. Oh my goodness. That's awesome. <laughs>
You have been listening to Surface Time Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guest today was Emma Dabadi, who is a marine biologist specialized in microbiome. What an adventure that she has been undertaking, not just for her research work, but also with her young family. They are definitely experiencing the rich diversities of Africa. Hopefully, her research will lead to some magical discoveries of reversing the climate emergency and global warming. Surface Time is executively produced by Noetic Production and Music by Dress Studio. If you have enjoyed our Surface Time chat, please show us some love and subscribe. And even better, share with your friends and family so that they get to be inspired. And if you would like to share your stories on Surface Time, we would love to hear from you. Please email us to faith at servicetimechats.com.